Hello and welcome to Cody and Corbin Have a Podcast, the show where two former roommates talk about Oppenheimer. As always, I'm your host, Corbin Zavokal, and joining me for the final time this season, my co-host Cody Webb. Cody, it's the season finale, and we're talking about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Are you ready, man? I'm super excited. Like you said, season finale here. So gotta, of course, have a good one to go off on. And uh, yeah, I think this is going to be a bomb episode if if I say so myself. So yeah, pretty pumped. Well said. Getting ready to go nuclear on them. Let's go. Why did you pick this movie? Why, 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 why so serious? It's a joint pick. It's for our season finale, of course, but it's very obvious. This past weekend, we saw the release of the two biggest movies we've had the t- in terms of like cultural conversation in four years since Endgame came out. Like we have not had a movie that has meant as much as these two films, at least since then. Would you agree? I don't know. That's that's putting it. <laughs> I'm saying like there hasn't been, I'm not saying that this has as much significance as that. I would say to some groups of people this weekend is more significant. And, and it, like the Barbie reaches a demographic that those Marvel films never quite did. But I mean, I, I we definitely nobody's cared about the movies as much post pandemic than they have this past weekend. And the box office can show that the, you know, my Twitter feed can show that going out to the movie theaters and just seeing the people dressed up in pink or wearing black and doing the the Barbie Oppenheimer double feature. I mean, it's a cool moment. And we had to address both this film and Barbie in our next episode. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think you're, you're definitely right that it's kind of a big deal for moviegoers, I feel like. Especially, I mean, where I'm at as well, it's kind of a massive thing. Uh, I mean, you had like Spider-Man No Way Home. You had Top Gun Maverick. Like you had other things in between too, just to, you know, play devil's advocate. But yeah, I think uh, you hit on the head and just saying like, it was kind of a big deal for moviegoers, which if I'm being completely honest, I didn't see it coming that much. But um, we'll get into it both more on on uh, both these back-to-back Barbenheimer episodes here. But yeah, kind of a cool moment, at least in in this summer. I think it's the standout moment so far, by far, like you said. Yeah, and the thing, the cool thing is, like, not even just, like, for moviegoers, I felt this is something that, like, even if you're not a person that goes to the movies, you were kind of drawn in, like, okay, I got to see what's up with Barbie. I got to see what's up with Oppenheimer. Um, like we said, this is our season finale, but we will be back very shortly with our season premiere, introducing a new season with some new categories to discuss Greta Gerwig's Barbie. So stay tuned for that episode. But today's episode is going to be all about Oppenheimer. Let's take it away with Do You Remember? Do you remember? Cody, walk me through your theater experience watching Oppenheimer. Did you see this in 70 millimeter? Was it digital? Tell me about it, man. Yeah, so my experience was pretty good. I believe I saw it in, uh, in 70 millimeter. Could be wrong in that. I might have to go check my ticket, but I saw it on the big screen. <laughs> I mean, let's not assume. Um, I I always go to uh, this Regal that is fairly close to where I live. I don't know why. It's just kind of a, a nicer little theater, um, a super low key. And uh, I went to both Barbie and Oppenheimer at this theater. So it's a good time. Um, I actually went to this showing on Sunday, kind of morning-ish. So I got like, I think it was either the 11 or the noon show. I don't even remember. Basically, I just woke up and then uh, walked over to Oppenheimer, which was very fun. But I had a good experience overall. Obviously, we'll, we'll go into initial thoughts here. But I do have a fun story as well about my theater experience that I'll save for a little bit later on. So uh, stay Ooh, tuned. Oh, a teaser. That. Yeah. <laughs> but how was your experience? It was good. Mina and I uh, on Saturday did the full 
Barbenheimer, spend the day at the movies thing. Uh, so I'll discuss more about the Barbie experience, but I saw that movie first. Uh, we also had a little pit stop in the middle of the day to see a Toy Story for the 100th year Disney celebration. It's back in theaters. I don't know. They put a bunch of their old movies in theaters. So we got a little Toy Story taste in the middle. Then we had some Raising Cane's for dinner. The new uh, Times mm. Square location has opened up. Quite the uh, the packed uh, location, I can say that. Uh, bread sofas inside. So check that out. Oh. And then at 10.30 p.m., we went to the AMC Lincoln Square in, in Manhattan. Big IMAX theater there. One of like 20 30 locations in the country that you could see it on the 70 millimeter IMAX full frame you know the way Christopher Nolan intended it format uh, we had to get our tickets a few weeks ago and the theater had been sold out for for a really long time and it, it was a really cool experience of just everybody you know packed into this giant madhouse to see these giant beautiful images uh, projected on a giant screen I did want to talk a little bit about the whole like 70 millimeter and IMAX and, and kind of just discuss the differences between that. So mm. modern film today is often shot entirely digitally. They're not even using film cameras, shot digitally, edited digitally. It's projected using laser use from a DCP digital media file. And these are high, super high quality files. The resolution is very high. It's meant to be seen on a big screen, but it doesn't really compare to film. And because the truth of the matter is film does not have like a resolution limit. It's resolution is extremely high quality captured on physical pieces of celluloid. 70 millimeter film is a movie is basically the largest piece of film that you can get in a standard size format with the standard aspect ratio of similar to 16 by nine. It's not exactly, I think it's like 2.3 to one or something like that. Um, if you look at movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey, was shot on 70 millimeter film and it projected that way. This movie was shot on 70 millimeter film, but then 70 millimeter IMAX film, which then creates that more of that square aspect ratio that you see um, in IMAX film. The really interesting thing is that because this movie didn't really use any sort of digital effects or didn't really like go in and change the backgrounds or use CGI in the way that so many modern movies do, they were able to keep everything on the film and even edit it directly on the film and not have any loss of quality and transferring it to digitally and then editing and returning it film. So it's like the film stock that it was shot on, it was edited on and pieced together. And then that film was directly copied. And that's why you can go see it at such a high quality and such a, a beautiful projection um, of today all over the country, which is really cool. Well said, I think another little thing too, that I could be way off on this, but I believe this is correct. I think this was the, the first ever movie to use black and white in like the IMAX format, like shoot, uh, like, well, I don't know how it would be. It's probably like 50, 50 almost, I would think, but yeah, it's probably like 75, 25, but so cool too, I feel like. Traditional film, but like when you think of film, like in the nineties and eighties, when like Martin Scorsese was shooting movies, they're really usually shooting on 35 millimeter film. That's your standard color, like print film. 70 millimeters, obviously two times the size of that, you're getting more image, you're getting a larger image, you're getting more picture, higher quality. There was no 70, 70 millimeter or 65 millimeter black and white film that even existed in the IMAX format. So I had to go to Kodak and be like, hey, can you like make us film to shoot these black and white scenes that no one specifically, you know, needed because it was, uh, you know, to, to still tell the story that you wanted to tell in that specific way, which I think, like you said, is really cool. 100%. And, um, I was going to touch on this more in my initial thoughts, but 
doing a movie like this entirely practical i think is absolutely insane um so just props to Nolan that like off the bat but from a visual style like i think this movie is unbelievably impressive and like you said like we're in the modern age here of of making movies and that is unheard of i feel like you know maybe like 10 15 years ago it was like impressive if you had like oh 300 like cg shots it's almost shocking in this day and age to have like zero CG shots. So I think, and like you said, and that really doesn't lend itself to film more. So just an impressive achievement just in that standpoint alone, I think. Yeah, I mean, like even today, when you see a movie, it's like every frame has been touched up digitally. Like whether it's to make the actors look a little bit better or there's something in the background that they just need to remove or like this little brand logo appeared that they have to cut. like every frame you see has probably been altered in some way. And it's like, it's so cool that just like Nolan took his budget and he said, we're going to put everything in front of the camera and we're going to make sure it looks good first and foremost before we even shoot it. And then when we shoot it, it's going to create an even better product, which I, I just think is really awesome. Yeah, agreed. Last thing I want to talk about in the Do You Remember, because this was such a huge weekend at the box office and such a big moment for people actually to go see this in movie theaters, I wanted to talk about the box office results of this film and its opening weekend. Cody, do you know how much money this movie made? Oh, I do. I think it was around the 80 million mark, somewhere around there, right? Is that right? Yeah, so we are filming this at on Monday evening at like 7 o'clock, so this is, you know, the most recent numbers that I have pulled up. It made about $82 million domestically, which is, you know, a very strong opening, especially like a three-hour rated R biopic <laughs> opening in 2023. Yep. And then it made another 97 million internationally for about a total of 180 million worldwide. So really strong opening uh, for this film. Really curious to see where it ends up. I, I don't think it'll cross the 500 million mark, but it, it'd be cool to see it get to like the you know 350, 400. The longevity, I think, will be interesting on it. I don't know. I, I think it will continue to perform pretty well. Obviously, there's always drop off, but it's it's hard to judge, but... I feel like this movie, especially just because of its quality, which we'll get into, I think it'll make um, a lot of money. And uh, its budget, I don't believe, was uh, very big either. I, I believe it already made its budget back. I think it was it. about $100 million of the budget. Yeah. Yeah. So opening weekend world, it's already past that. So I think uh, Universal's pretty happy they, they signed on Chris Nolan for, for you know a few movies here. So that is pretty cool. Yeah, definitely a success in uh, luring him over and, and producing this film. <laughs> They gave him Initial the max contract and it worked out. <laughs> hey, they got the championship in the first year. <laughs> Initial thoughts, Cody. Good morning, Vietnam! Take it away. What'd you think, man? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be pretty high in this movie just off the bat. Uh, Christopher Nolan, he's just him. He's just him, I think. And I feel like, in a sense, this is a bit of his Oscar bait. It is the closest thing he has ever made to an yeah. Oscar bait film. I mean... And we were kind of talking about it in our tenant episode a little bit, but it's kind of like a culmination of like his modern age of film, like you were saying with the practical effects, which is again wild that all of this is practical, especially like the first hour, which is kind of just like Killian Murphy, Oppenheimer seeing like all this crap in his mind, and all that stuff being practical is very very cool. Just knowing that information going into the film as well, I think makes it a lot better. But uh, yeah, like I said, it's kind of a culmination, a little bit of Dunkirk with the biopickiness of the of that interstellar with all these new visual effects kind of being introduced. The inter I mean, that interest in physics. I mean, this this yeah. the passion that he's found. He's essentially like met and talked to many physicists over the years, and they've 
there's people that have like ha had a hand in writing his scripts and he's like done all this like that interest spawned you know in his early work on on films like interstellar and it's taken him all the way here to making a movie about one of the the great physicists of the 20th century that journey through all of that i think is really cool and tenet we we said there's some same morality issues and a little bit of physics in there obviously too but i think this is kind of nolan in his prime at least from a kind of just oscar movie quality standpoint uh spoiler alert i think uh right now this has got to be the front runner for for best picture obviously it's very early on but uh, in our Oscar picks, I'm I might take a nom for best picture in this. Just spoiler alert, but uh, yeah, I'm pretty high. I think the performances as well are going to clean up uh, at the Academy. I mean, this is Kill Killian Murphy. How do you say his name? Cillian. I don't Killian. know. Killian's right. Yeah, sure, whatever. But uh, obviously, this movie's on his shoulders entirely as the you know uh, main title role, and I think he massacres it. I think this is probably his best performance of all time, and. Uh, you can just put a wrap on his career because I really don't think he'll do anything better than this uh, for the rest of eternity. But I think uh, we'll we'll dive into a lot of more of this stuff in the good. But the performances I think are are pretty crazy. Uh, it is a long movie, obviously clocking in at three hours here. But I really was not like looking at the clock the entire time. I feel like I was pretty engaged the first hour. Like I said, it's kind of just set up for Oppenheimer, which is pretty important since you know this whole movie is just surrounding. Kind of his moralities, um, which is pretty interesting. But I'll throw it over you. I got a couple other things, but I like this movie. <laughs> I think that's obvious. I mean, I would generally agree with everything that you said right off the bat. I think going in, I was a little bit tepid on this movie, whether it be like the subject matter or even just like as I've begun to examine some of Nolan's films. And despite, I mean, listen, he's one of my favorite filmmakers, but as I begin to examine some of his films more critically in the re recent years, like I've seen some more flaws. So like I was a little tepid going into this but he like he proved me wrong and like he he did it again like he did what he's done repeatedly over the last two decades he's created an incredible technical marvel that you need to go see like that it is worthwhile to like go sit in a movie theater and watch while he is the director of this film there are so many great craftspeople that went into making it and like whether it's the the editor or the composer or the cinematographer like every individual person brought their fucking A game and they created something that uh, just is an incredible marvel. It's just a technical achievement. And um, spoiler alert, it's, I would say it's my favorite movie that I've seen this year. So um, I, I'm really, my favorite new movie that has come out this year, right. I'll say. It was extremely engaging despite being that three hours, like you said. Um, and, and it's also just a subject matter that Nolan has been preparing to tackle like you said and i think this was the right time and the right moment to really take it on both this movie and barbie were like written during the covid19 pandemic and it's really interesting to look at them in the context of that of like when you lock yourself away in a house and you're stuck there with with nothing but yourself in a pad of paper what do you write and what do you you know draw to and and nolan taking on this story of a struggling genius with the weight of the world and the guilt of the world on his shoulders, but then also like a world that turns against him at the same time. I, I think it's really interesting. I want to talk about the cast of this film a little bit before we uh, move on, Cody. Obviously, it uh, was the subject matter of many jokes between you and I and jokes of the internet of every white person in Hollywood practically getting cast in this movie. Um, but I did just kind of want to run through the billing order because I thought that was really interesting. And I, I, I just I didn't know if you stuck around to take a look at that. So here is the billing. 
Killian Murphy, number one, obviously. Emily Blunt, number two. Who can, can you guess three, Cody? I mean, it's either Matt Damon or Florence Pugh. I, I would guess Matt Damon. Matt Damon, okay. then Robert Downey Jr. Okay, that makes sense, actually. Then Florence Pugh. Josh Hartnett coming in next. He's in the movie a lot, to be fair. Then Casey Affleck. No, the, yeah, you lost me there. And that <laughs> concludes the main title billing of the film. And we get a with Rami Malek, Oscar winner Rami Malek, so he gets the with credit, and <laughs> Kenneth Branagh, which I thought was really interesting. And then everybody else is uh, not single card billed. So I think the next two that show are Benny Safdie and Jason Clark, which like they have much more prominent roles than some of those people build ahead of them. But, you know, yeah. hey, that's, that's Hollywood for you. The, the Casey Affleck one is, is, I agree, the craziest. <laughs> Nolan's like, you only get one scene. He's like, I better be in the billing. <laughs> that is funny. Kind of going along with that too. Just the cast in general and like all the little people, like you said. I'm shocked also you didn't uh, shout out Ludwig already. I'm sure he'll come up. But uh, I think like all of the little pieces just being really, really good is just a testament. Like everyone wants to work with Nolan at this point. It's kind of just like he's more laid back, but everybody else is like, holy shit, I'm on a Nolan movie. Like, I need to be really good. So I think that definitely adds into it, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, and favorite movie of the year? I feel like something else came out this year that I really like. Spider-Verse. Yeah, I probably like Spider-Verse more in this movie. That's tough. These are two good movies. They're they're, they're very close for me. I will say that. Um, And and uh, I I really want to rewatch this movie. I've only seen it once. I think this is a movie deserving of another watch. Agreed. Because, I mean, there are so many just small scenes, like one-off character scenes, too. So, like you said, uh, off the top, I feel like we are going to forget some people. So, if, you know, you're a smaller actor in this movie, like uh, Roderick Rules or somebody like that, and don't get mentioned, I do apologize. But uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, too, like you are saying, the approach of the subject matter and kind of just the psyche of uh, Oppenheimer is really interesting. Just because coming into this, I feel like you've, you could have gone uh, an entirely different direction of just being like, let's get as many nuke shots as we can on the screen but they really don't do that they go completely from the scientists and the physicists uh perspectives here which is really cool i think like they don't even show the hiroshima or nagasaki because these these people didn't see it either they just saw the aftermath and how brutal that is so i really like just the approach of this movie altogether as like they could have just melted i feel like as many nuke shots as they could but they really went with kind of the ultra realistic like biopic angle which no one doesn't really do at all so i think that's pretty cool we will talk more about the ways that this like fits into the stylistic world of nolan's filmmaking but it doesn't it doesn't go like extremely fantastical in that way that you could expect it to do and in the wrong hands maybe it would but the the choices he makes to go a little bit off the rails or to be a little bit more um movie like and rather set in their stone cold world of reality um, are, are choices for, for emotion and choices to put us in the heads of the characters and choices to, to kind of show the, the anxiety and the, the loss and the, the uncertainty that our characters are feeling throughout the movie and the, the weight of guilt that they're feeling, not to just show like, oh, hey, look, doesn't this look sick, right? And I think that was a really good choice. And it, of course, it all does look very, very sick. Um, I think this is a great shot at uh, visual effects, obviously. Um, and one last thing with that, too, like we already talked about the black and white, but like the switching of the black and white to those are more like, you know, set in stone of, you know, that probably did happen in real life. And then when it goes to the color shots, it's kind of like the interpretation and through like Oppenheimer's 
you know, eyes and his, his personal stories and stuff. So I like that a lot too. Like he's, he's really differentiating like what he knows happens for sure versus like his just take on it. And like him just being able to show the audience in that format, I think is really dope too. Just everything kind of stylistically in this movie is, is I think unbelievable. I agree 100%. Let's talk about the trailer. Trailer talk, Cody. Imagine a future. And our imaginings horrify us. They won't fear it. Until they understand it. And they won't understand it. Until they've used it. Theory will take you only so far. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon. But we have no choice. Honestly, I think this is just like a very straightforward vanilla biopic version of the trailer. I know there's some different cuts of it that are kind of like a little bit more experimental, a little bit more interesting. I think this one is like, here's Killing Murphy. He's the star. You're going to focus on him. It's about his performance. This is a movie. And yes, Christopher Nolan directs it. It's really just showing a lot of like the style of like the editing that's used throughout. We see a ton of like the scientific imagery that's representing what's in Oppenheimer's head, but it really doesn't focus too much on the outside cast or really anything beyond the very basics of the story. There is like a little bit of a lead in at the end about maybe this is an examination or like a moral, this is a movie that's asking like moral quandaries and moral questions. I think this, the trailer presents it more of just like, oh, here's the story of this guy, which I think, you know, is maybe not an accurate representation of what it really is. And I don't think it's a terrible thing, honestly, because it doesn't really give away what this movie is really about, which I think is good. I like we always talk about. I feel like you know trailers give away anything, everything. This trailer really doesn't give away anything, which I love. Uh, so I feel like going into this movie cold is, is definitely the way to do it. Yeah, I thought it was okay. I mean, even in a sense too, like I didn't know if it was just like a straight up biopic or maybe it was something a little bit more mystical and sci-fi from like the cut of this trailer, because obviously the start of it is kind of just like the more of the visual stuff we see off the bat with obviously just like oh the, this bomb and this big ball of fire and then all the little you know protons neutrons whatever the shit that is called like going on so it's kind of like okay like is this interstellar are we gonna go somewhere crazy in the third act or something so i think it leaves it open to it's a nolan film you know there's gonna be bombs it's pretty much all you need to know and killing murphy is there obviously too but another small thing they do like the ticking like um you know clock down of you know the bomb's gonna explode which is cool like building up suspense in a trailer but i feel like it it also like flashes up 
the 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 date of when the movie's gonna gonna come out and i feel like that it felt like dunkirk where it just like flashed like oh you know is there gonna be some weird time shifts in this that i don't know about like this movie it flies all over the place time wise but it really wasn't like that at all but i feel like from the trailer i got a notion of maybe it was gonna be similar formatting to, to kind of dunkirk well, it's interesting that you say that because, like, I remember when the very first teaser came out for this movie and, like, all it was was the big wall of fire and then, like, a countdown where it said, like, yeah. seven months, whatever, how many days, hours. And that is, I got the same idea where I was like, oh, okay, so it's, like, going to be the the Dunkirk thing where it's like, okay, we see, like, one thread of, like, a month-long thing and then we see maybe, like, the couple minutes of the actual bomb dropping. But obviously that's not what it was. Um, and they, but you know it's it's cool that like Nolan is such a a filmmaker that's taken so many different avenues that we can like you know speculate about like oh what is going to be the thing he does obviously like you said in this movie it's the black and white versus the color and the kind of conflicting timelines in, in that nature 100% but I think it's a good trailer like I said doesn't give away anything away I think um, there are a couple shots of Josh Peck I think maybe he gets more screen time in the trailer than he does in the movie <laughs> But uh, shout out Drake and Josh. So you got to do what you got to do, you know. Let's head over to the good. And that actually kind of kicks off the very first thing I wanted to talk about. Yes, this movie has a cast of like every white dude in Hollywood. But at the same time, like there's some really interesting picks in here. And it kind of shows that Nolan has a little bit more of trashy taste like eclectic taste like more common taste than maybe like you might expect him to have I think it was funny I heard him on like a podcast where he's talking about how like Talladega Nights was the movie that he would like always rewatch because it's yes. just so easy to jump into like this movie has Dane DeHaan in it and like what is Dane DeHaan in like Chronicle and the fucking amazing <laughs> Spider-Man like not a lot of it's got Devin Bostick the dude who played Roderick in the Diary of a Wimpy Kid movies and like Nolan has acknowledged that he like knows what those movies are and like knows that actor from him. It's got, you know, Alden Ehrenreich in like a really cool role. And yes, he was Han Solo, but that was not very well respected. And he's been in like Cocaine Bear and like some TV stuff. And obviously there's the big obvious heavy hitters. You've got Matt Damon and Robert Downey Jr. You've got Killian Murphy and Emily Blunt. But like, I think some of the supporting people that he brings in, even like Josh Hartnett, who's like an actor that's had a lot of ups and downs in his careers, he brings in some really interesting people that are really successful in the roles that they play. 100%. Um, I honestly forgot Dana DeHaan was in this movie because he's playing it. <laughs> but I love that guy. So I love he got a shout out. Uh, a couple other just smaller people in it too that I really like. I think Florence Pugh is ridiculously good. She's not really a small one, I guess. She has a few. I things. wanted to save that for, for a whole separate thing. Florence okay. Pugh. Fair enough. Well, I'll, I'll run through a couple other ones and we'll shoot down. Um, but Matthew Modine of Stranger Things is in it for a little bit. Papa, dude. <laughs> yeah, Papa, shop Papa. Uh, Bernard from the Santa Claus is like uh, the pastor. He's he's been in a bunch. I think he's amazing in this. So shout out Bernard from the Santa Claus. Uh, Jason Clark, like you said. He's, he's in fame. In, <laughs> he is in a lot, man. The, I mean, I, I did not expect this much screen One time. of the main antagonists. Oh, yeah, he's a real dick, and I think he does it well. So shout out to him. And then uh, Gary Oldman, of course, as President Truman. Only anyone for one scene, but I think it's a pretty memorable scene. Um, and then the guy who plays Albert Einstein, who's also – I saw on Twitter, he's also the guy in The Dark Knight Rises in The Pit who, like, trains Batman back up to strength. I guess those are the same people. Tom but Conti. Thought, yeah, Tom Conti. I thought he was really good as Einstein as well. Um, 
And I'm sure a couple other small ones will come up too, but the two supporting standouts for me is uh, first out RDJ. I mean, of course, I feel like this is the obvious pick. Um, I think an Oscar nom is, is surely incoming for this role, but I thought he was just awesome. Um, and even after all the crap he's been saying, we're like, oh, I forgot how to act after being in the MCU. The first movie you like come and do back that's big like this and, and you do that. And so. Doc, don't forget Doolittle. True, true. Uh, I tried to forget about Doolittle, uh, but the world never let me forget. Um, and then my other one is Matt Damon. I don't think he's in this movie a ton. He's got a great mustache he's sporting. Kind of just a real American general prick. And I think he did it really well. So he doesn't have the most screen time either, but there's a couple specific scenes with him and Killian Murphy I thought were really, really good. Um, just because Matt Damon, I feel like he just hates everybody in this movie, but for some reason, him and Killian Murphy are just boys throughout. So <laughs> I like their relationship, even though Matt Damon is a complete asshole to everybody else. Um, but obviously I just ran through like half the cast. So there's tons of missing, but just a lot of really fun roles that are just really, really small parts. Damon plays that so well, where it's like the moments of, of giving in to Killian or kind of like letting him do what he wants. Cause he kind of needs them are, are really interesting and especially in that final moment in the black and, or in the interrogation scene when he like has to basically be like oh no i would not give him security clearance now it's, it's really hard and it's like you can see the the toughness that that is for his character in that moment speaking of florence Pugh, her character we will talk about further as we get to the ugly <laughs> however she's just and this is not even because like yes she's naked for the majority of her scenes but like She's just so incredibly captivating. And like every single thing that she does in this movie were like my favorite moments. And it's like the allure of her, like you can understand why Oppenheimer was kind of like seduced by this, but then also just like the ingenious and the power and like the the political savvy that she has and the awareness, but then also like playing the, you know, a little bit of the mentally un, unwell of it all. Um, I, I just think Florence Pugh is so great and it's fantastic that she's in this movie and, and I love her and everything. Up and coming star, I think. And uh even though she's like fifth billing or whatever and doesn't have too much screen time, I think she yeah, it's pretty amazing in this role. And I think uh Oscars are coming her way because like you said, she's just unbelievably captivating in this movie. And um yeah, I like most of her scenes, I'll just say that. But uh specifically like her character, the whole communist storyline. I didn't even know like any of that was really in this at all. And that's pretty much what her character is, is completely centered around is just that setup for Oppenheimer. I thought that was definitely one of the strengths of the movie. I don't know. It's interesting too, because looking back on history, of course, we always learn about like McCarthyism in school and, you know, everyone was- they read the crucible and you're like, oh, hey, you know, this is an allegory. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, like, oh, you know, oh, communists are terrible. Communists are terrible. But in a sense, I think what this movie is showing a lot more is it was a bit of a like a political scapegoat in a sense because they just kind of labeled these people who were you know on the opposite side of the spectrum as oh you're in the communist party and then of course oh the russians are, are the bad guys now and they're all communists so you must be with them i think that's really interesting uh from, just from a story perspective and obviously there's a lot of historical context that i just don't think i'm that well informed on but i'm and I are kind of being directly on that line of he is he's a political activist pretty much the entire movie and i think that's really cool uh just because like florence Pugh's character is really kind of influential of that um even though like obviously do they get married i feel, i don't know are they married at the start and then obviously florence the Pugh, I, I don't think so i think they just like are dating and seeing each okay. other and then he, he obviously leaves her for yeah. her 
Emily Blunt, who he <laughs> impregnates immediately, and then she's married to somebody else, and they have to like go get a secret divorce. It's quite the ordeal. Yeah, good stuff there, but the the politics stuff of of uh, Oppenheimer, I was a lot more engaged in than I thought I would be. So I thought that was pretty cool. Obviously, and, it's so. not surprising that like if you look at the history of our country, we've done some fucked up shit. Oh, it's yeah. like you know you can go to any decade and find whatever it is, but obviously, like it's really crazy that. In the 30s and 40s, we were working with the Soviet Union, you know, maybe not willingly, but we, you know, we had to at the very least in in collaboration to help fight the Nazis through uh, World War II, especially after the Nazis turned on them. So we were kind of like unwilling allies for a really extended period of time. And then following the end of World War II, they were our number one enemy in the world. And they used like the political view, like, Dude, fucking the things that I, I I have I've retweeted shit that would probably get me thrown in jail today, like uh, back then, because it's like any leftist or liberal ideals during that time period, like you could go to college and be at protests and stand up for the rights of people across the world, and you would be like scapegoated as a communist, and you could have this tiny little thing in your past that would get pulled up and and turned into a whole ordeal as we see in this movie. And and it's not just Oppenheimer. They talk about it, how like every scientist that was working on the Manhattan Project has been forced to leave uh, the world of academia because of, you know, whatever political ties that they've been associated with earlier on in their history. I think it's very, you know, it's unsurprising that a group of educated, intelligent people who are working on this project would also have these kind of values and understand that like, the working class people and people all over the world should receive support and that like unions are, are strong and powerful things and the, like like all these like leftist ideals that they have it's unsurprising that you know men of science and men of academia would also fit under this umbrella and it's just kind of crazy that like when the country needed them to create this weapon of mass destruction they were raised and hailed as heroes but then the second they were no longer needed they were turned on and you know, persecuted for their their values and beliefs. Very well said. And that's a massive theme, obviously, in this film of, you know, they, they'll use you until they don't need you anymore. And then after that, you know, it, it's 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 going to be whatever it is, but at least they need us right now. I feel like that was pretty much every recruiting pitch that, that Oppenheimer gave to these people. And going along with that too, I don't know, I feel like just showing the aftermath of the, the Manhattan Project was done really, really well. Because going into it, I was just like, okay, this is going to be really cool, like, seeing all these scientists come together and, and kind of build the bomb. But I think the more interesting part of the movie was obviously the Jason Clark interrogation was um, intense. And there's so many interviews that people came through there, but RDJ's arc, I think is really, really cool too. Just like him being this petty, like he's like a Senator. I don't know his official title, whatever. I don't care. He's, he's obviously trying to get into Who's the uh, uh, head the of a- the atomic something? energy commission, the AEC yeah, he- chair. AC, there you go. But I love his arc because at the beginning of the movie, like I, I like RDJ, and it's like, okay, maybe RDJ is on the right side. Like he's saying, like there's a leak and and there's a commie, you know, in somewhere in here, and uh, how the Russians get this information. I'm like, hey, maybe RD, RDJ is kind of right in this. And then by the end of the movie, it's just completely flipped on his head. Like this guy is just a really petty person who kind of wanted credit for Oppenheimer, and he kind of has this you know um rivalry in his head with Oppenheimer the entire time and he's so infatuated with what did he say to Einstein to turn him against me and his 
it's 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 funny it's like these two things it's this this one moment where like he thinks oppenheimer's talked shit about him to einstein and it's the second moment where like oppenheimer kind of made fun of him in front of congress about like the uh isotopes export of radioisotopes and he made a joke about it and he thought that that like (laughs) was so disrespectful that those two things basically set him on a a war path against oppenheimer to get him in trouble (laughs) and rdj like becoming an antagonist at the end from an acting standpoint i really like um but i really like too like all of the his like advisors i don't even know who that the main guy is the actor um, alden ehrenreich console oh is that all unrecognizable i didn't know who josh hartnett was the entire movie either it's like josh hartnett play i have he no was idea. pretty unrecognizable i'll give you that Alden ehrenreich he's good though and i thought it was funny like his like i said his advisors and stuff like all turned on him he's like why would he come out and do that like rami malik out in front of everybody He's like, you know, it's hard when people just come out and want to speak the truth against bad people or something. Like, <laughs> it's like, that's a cool line. But another super specific scene I want to talk about in the good here too, uh, and I think this is probably my favorite scene in the, in the movie, is where Killian Murphy is going out to the big crowd at uh, Los Alamos or whatever. They're all like stomping their feet on the bleachers, which is kind of foreshadowed before early on too. But I think it does a really, really cool job of just showing like, the moral struggles he's going through while still having to be kind of like this political leader. And they did obviously like succeed what they went out to do. And they did it in just like the most tough and like brutal way possible. Um, Like morally, I I thought it was just really interesting how that scene was entirely set up to, you know, what's going on in his head. Like uh, even the shot of him, like stepping, you know, through, through the carcass is, is tough, but at the same time, he, he's got all these people just cheering because they've been there for like five years and they really did achieve what they set out to with all this money. But I think the moral quandaries is, is really what carries that scene in, in the majority of the film for me. Like these people were all scientists whose job was to make a discovery and to do something. And like they they had a successful trust, test that they completed the, the A-bomb they were set out to build and like they advanced science forward However, when you look at the impact of what the results of that scientific advancement were, you then begin into the uh, the moral quandaries that we're talking about. That scene, I love. I love the sound design of it. I think that scene and the actual Trinity tests are so perfectly executed, and they're the reason that I think this movie is guaranteed the win for the sound design Oscar. Um, when it comes to the Trinity test, the way it kind of cuts out the sound and uses the sound, um, yeah. Also, just like the appearance of the light is so cool. And then, like you said, the, the pounding of the feet and the way that the sound cuts out, there's a really cool thing where he like delivers the line of dialogue about like, oh, the Japanese didn't like it. And then like all the people stand up and you can hear them standing up in their chairs, but then the sound of them cheering gets cut out. And it's just like this really cool, like awkward moment. And you're like stuck in Oppenheimer's head as he's experiencing that. And then, like you said, he steps on like the deceased ashed corpse, which is just like, awful imagery that you have to experience so i really love that scene i think it's so awesome and it's just kind of an example of the the achievements of the editing and the sound design and the music that are really used throughout um i do have to shout out my boy ludwig uh again you know the collaboration from from tenet hans was still busy with dune part two so we brought ludwig back and uh i think that his use of strings is really great in this there's also like kind of those sounds of like the Geiger counters that are kind of integrated into the score as well. Um, just, just really good. I think the first scene when he visits Einstein 
maybe not the first scene, but that when he visits Einstein to ask him if he thinks the chain reaction could be possible, it's the scene when they're out in the woods together. The score mm-hmm. specifically in that moment as like Einstein's contemplating everything, it's fantastic. It's really great. Also just got to shout out the editing. Jennifer Lane is the editor on this movie. It's so fast paced. It's so quick back and forth between those different temporalities. It's technically two main timelines like we talked about color and black and white but when you really think about it it's kind of three because it's like the black and white is the future and the color is kind of the present almost of the hearing that's happening if you want to set it that but then within the present of the hearing we're flashing back to the events that he's discussing so there's kind of three different timelines Um, i really liked how in the beginning of the film he identified those moments as fission which is the color fission is obviously how they is is the practice they used to develop the first nuclear bombs, the A-bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Fission is when you punch neutrons and atoms together to create the splitting. Fusion is what the black and white is labeled, and that is what they used, the splitting of the atom, to create hydrogen bombs, which is like Benny Safdie's character, Edward Teller, was so interested in doing, and what we then, you know, developed following World War II and created the secondary arms race leading into the Cold War. So it's kind of cool to see the fission and the fusion, both that ideals of, you know, Oppenheimer, you know, being one with his nation and being a part of thing and then Oppenheimer being split and fused away from his nation in in the black and white scenarios. Um, I just really think those two uses were really, uh, really effectively done. And the way that Jennifer Lane edited those scenes together and the imagery of Oppenheimer's own mental state is really effective as well. I agree. I think uh, the technicals will will do pretty well, uh, you know, come come January, whenever the hell the Oscars is as well. Um, one other thing I want to point out story-wise that I really like, and, and we talked in the podcast about, about similar stuff here, but uh, kind of a little bit matching first shot and last shots. I wanted um, to bring this up as well. Yeah, so obviously at the beginning, we get a very young Killian, which I love those scenes too, just because visually they do look very different just character-wise from the ending uh, to the beginning. But... The power of a haircut, man. Killian, yeah. he can really show some age. <laughs> I think Killian lost a lot of weight for this too. So he's going a uh, full machinist, Christian Bale. But uh, yeah, obviously it's just a similar thing where he's just kind of looking at the raindrops, um, you know, falling down in, in a puddle or a lake. But like the emotional turmoil uh, from the beginning to the end is almost completely different. The beginning, it's it's kind of like, I feel like in a sense, he's he's a bit lost. He doesn't know where he's going with all of this, um, but he is enthralled kind of just with the physics and he can kind of has a sense of, of possibly what's coming. And at the end, it, it's completely different. It's, you know, <laughs> kind of just contemplating his life. Like, was all of that, that really worth it? Like, what did we go through just to achieve this? Just millions and millions of questions, I'm sure, running through his head of, of the moralities of all of it. But obviously, and I've said this before on the podcast, but I like that a lot when you have like a similar shot at the beginning and the end. I think it's just a nice wrap up and a, and a cool way to, to write a script. While the scene between him and Einstein where they're looking over the water that you're referencing and there you see the rain falling while the quote and like that final reveal of like maybe the chain reaction already did happen and we have ruined the world we have destroyed the world it's we've been engulfed in flame well that's a little bit kind of hitting you right over the head with the main idea and a little bit obvious I I still love it I think that's a great ending I think thematically it connects everything together it's We've been wanting to know the entire movie. What did he say to Einstein to cause him to, you know, ignore Robert Downey Jr. in that same way? And um, it also kind of just, you know, wraps up this 
this final idea that Oppenheimer has come to this conclusion that like, you know, I feared that maybe I, you know, I finally did make the mistake. We've already gone too far and the chain reaction's already been set off. 100%. And um, I had that down. To, I love the ending. I think that is such a good conclusion just because like in a sense at that time, if I was him too, I probably would have been like, eventually like it'll just be another nuclear war and and like probably the world get will de- get destroyed so i think that like you said that conversation has been going on between them the entire movie in a sense of will this end the world if if we kind of you know de- develop this technology and for that to be his conclusion at the end is it's pretty horrifying and it, it is a good ending i think it, it leaves you on a note that you're like damn like this guy he kind of just gave it all and um kind of got nothing in return but bad things we didn't live through like the cold war obviously so we didn't experience like the full effects of like you know being afraid of nuclear holocaust but like it's still an ever-present threat and like there's still constant worries about like you know nations building up their nuclear arms you know every week it's like oh what's north korea doing they're gonna have nukes like there's still an ever-present fear and like i and i just want to say like we're not like like oppenheimer was a very flawed man and like what he did like you know he was presented with a obviously a tough situation and somebody would have built the bomb probably regardless i agree i mean he's the protagonist and you can't help for rooting for him at some points but i mean this is a very very flawed individual overall and i don't know if any of these characters in this movie are, are really good people when it comes down to it obviously we see with a lot of the characters in the interrogation scenes too it's like these people are just doing this just to kind of pursue their careers a little bit more in a sense um so a lot of slimy and a lot of back scenes action here and Oppenheimer was definitely a main player in that I personally think it was a good choice to not show the actual Hiroshima or Nagasaki bombs being dropped I agree first of all I just think that would be like a really terrible thing to render on screen and that doesn't need to be like put into filmic quality to like get the message it costs you understand the tragedy and the horror of that without that but it's also like like you said the people that were with were not there. They didn't see it. They just kind of like experienced and heard about the following aftermath. I mean, they, they didn't even know whether it was a successful bomb drop until they heard the news announced on the radio the day after it happened. You know, they heard the, the news from Truman coming down. However, I think it presents it in a really interesting way because that is the fact of the matter. These decisions, you know, 200,000 people were murdered by the American government at the hands of like a group of white dudes that sat around a table and discussed which Japanese cities they should bomb. Here's a list of 12. Which one do you guys, which one should we pick? And like in the movie, it's, you know, played as just like, oh, this is just nonchalant, normal shit. But like, I think that's kind of the horror of it all. Like it was a group of these people who were completely disconnected from the lives and the innocent, you know, bystanders that were hundreds of thousands of miles away. And the only way that they could even like gain a connection to or like understand what these people are or in the context of the one city Kyoto where he like this one guy honeymooned there and he like sees it as a cultural hub. So like the only like basic point of interest or like attachment they have to this country and its people is from like a tourist representation. And I think that's just like really representative of, of what happened. Like it was a bunch of white men and who were just like disconnected completely, pushing buttons and making decisions and, you know, thousands of people died because of it which i think is just awful i completely agree um i think it was an interesting angle too like i said of like the the scientists being against like them even using this weapon and then obviously they have no say in it at all uh when it comes down to it 
And um, another just tough scene uh, was just them reacting to kind of all the images and stuff that came back. And even the radio, uh, kind of everybody hearing that, it's just, you, you just have a, a sense of hopelessness, And I think. Um, but yeah, I think character-wise, it was pretty strong, but there's a lot of just like uncomfortable and, and tough stuff in this movie, which is good to address because there there really has not been too much media on this specific stuff in, in World War II. Obviously, there's tons of World War II flicks, but I don't feel like you get most of anything on like, you know, the psyche of the scientists who, you know, make, you know, massive weapons of destruction. I, I think that's pretty interesting. And I'm surprised it hadn't been touched on before, honestly. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it has, but nothing like super mainstream, you know. Yeah. And I mean, it's incredibly like, like it's almost it is literally an impossible question to answer, of like what the right thing to do is, because like I can easily say that it was an immoral act of dropping the bomb on, on hundreds of thousands of innocent people. Most acts of war are not moral, though. Like, that's the thing. And it's like, it, there was, you know, fucking, the, the Nazis were keeping people, you know, Jewish people in, in death camps and killing millions of people. And many of the people that were working to, you know, try and, you know, beat the Nazis to creating the A-bomb were Jewish people who, like, saw their families and, you know, friends, you know, driven out and, uh, their, their cultural and religious um, counterparts being, you know, persecuted by these men in Germany, that it's, it's perfectly understandable that they would want to, you know, stand up and create something to fight against that and to try and, you know, set these people free. Obviously, at the end of the day, it ended up getting used on the Japanese in response to Pearl Harbor. So like, even then things become more difficult. But like, it is such an impossible task and there are so many different factors that go into it. It is so, you know, hard to really even gauge. And, and that's why, you know, it, it makes an interesting movie. Agreed. And um, like you're saying, there's not a lot of interesting stuff just from the morality of it. Like just saying, I feel like they pretty much recruited everybody around the idea of, you know, what if the Nazis get this technology before we do? If like, we don't, yeah. It's like, if we don't yeah. do it, they're going to do it. So I think that's a, a good pitch at least but then i mean once you go through all the actions here and then you know the world's the war is almost over at this point where they germany had already surrendered when we dropped the bomb in in hindsight there's a lot of interesting stuff that the american government did obviously yeah let's move over to the bad cody Get it. kenneth branagh man this guy stop making him do accents what is up? I like <laughs> listen i i was trying to like it was like what's the performance i'm gonna call out because you know like there's so many people that just come in for one scene it's really hard to gauge for me, Kenneth Branagh was the guy that was not working whenever I saw him on screen. Obviously, he's playing Niels Bohr, German scientist. Um, but yeah, I, I would just, I don't know. Branagh, I don't want him to be Nolan's guy anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm saying it here. I think he's 10 times worse than Tenet, uh, personally. But I thought Niels he was okay. Bohr's Danish. I, I need to correct that. Sorry, Niels. Yeah, I didn't think he was German, but sure, Danish. I, I couldn't even, his accent work, and I have somebody as well who I don't like their accent work at all, but. I thought he was okay. I feel like he's he's the more forgettable. You know, he got a he got an end. Evidently, he's important to the story, but at least he's not doing the crazy Russian thing in tenets or you know his crazy detective, whatever the hell accent that even is either. I think that's just normal voice, probably to be fair. Perot and uh, <laughs> yeah, hey, Haunting of Venice coming soon to a theater near you. River on the Nile, great movie. Shout out Cap Classic there. Uh, <laughs> I'll just throw it over to my big my big performance. I'm calling out. You mentioned Moretti. I don't know why Benny Safdie had such a big role in this movie. I feel like I would have swapped out like just four other people who had tiny roles in this movie compared to Benny Safdie, but he's just doing like this terrible accent at the same time. 
So I don't know, like what, what accident is he even doing, Corbin? Can you tell me? I have no idea. And it's really distracting. And I just don't like his face either. So he's happy. Well, Edward Teller was a Hungarian-American. Hmm. I guess that's a tough one, to be fair, Hungarian accent. But his, his accent, I think it needed a little bit of work. I, I described it as mid. Um, he was born in Budapest. <laughs> but uh, I would say out of everybody, he, he's by far my least favorite uh, performance. And he, he had a lot of screen time, obviously. The creator of the, the H-bomb. Which I think was a cool kind of like a, a sequel setup in a sense. <laughs> no one there. Like when we get in the Benny Safty, uh, you know, Teller movie about the H bomb and and uh, the Cold War and stuff. So maybe that's on the horizon, but we'll see. I, I respect that. I, I think he's fine. Yeah, he's okay. I will admit that this movie does slow down a little bit post Trinity tests after the bomb gets dropped and then prior to like when things really pick up right at the end, I would say like the four fifth of the movie is a little slow for me. So I'll just say pacing wise, things do slow down when the timelines finally converge and we hit that little bit of, because just in general, like the editing isn't as fast. We're not jumping between as many different places. Everything kind of converges into one. So I I would say in terms of pacing, that bit just kind of slows down a bit for me there. I think that's fair. I also had another point. I think like the first hour pacing wise, it's kind of drawn out a little bit. Like you're saying, I think there's just little things maybe that this movie could have been like 245 instead of three, uh, you know, the three full epic hours, but I don't mind three hours. Like I said, I feel like, Throughout, I was still engaged, even if there was some slower moments. Um, another thing I wanted to shout out too, and this isn't even necessarily all bad, but we even talked a ton about Emily Blunt's character here. Um, the first half of the movie, or at least the setup, probably the first hour, kind of similar to what I was saying. I didn't love her character. She kind of just comes in and she's like this drunk mom um, who has a bunch of issues and stuff, but we don't really delve into what her issues are. We just know they are there. And then she kind of gets forgotten about, I feel like, a little bit in the second act. She's just pregnant like three times. And the fucking third act, Emily Blunt, out of nowhere, dude. I think she actually might get an Oscar nom. Um, Just from the, like, the towels or the sheets scene. I'm sorry, not the towels. The sheets, like, quote, on. I think Emily Blunt is is ridiculously good in this movie. All Uh, the stuff with Teller, all the stuff, like, yeah, it's also great. Her stuff with Teller, I love um her interrogation her interrogation scene is fantastic where she's sassing the guys (laughs) jason clark he he comes in on her he like scoots a little bit forward like oh he's not ready for this and then she like starts just like looking down and then she just snaps and goes off on him uh probably one of my favorite scenes 16 years ago no 17 years no actually i think it was 18 (laughs) so long ago she's great i wish she was just uh better utilized in like the first half of the movie because yeah, like I said, like I think from the two-hour point on, Emily Blunt maybe my my favorite performance of the bunch. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, the last main bad thing I got to call out, and I mentioned it in Tenet, but it's it's the Nolan problem. It's the sound mixing, and I think in this movie it wasn't as bad. However, this is his most talky movie ever. This is over at the big picture. They kind of really described this as his like Aaron Sorkin political drama where it's like everybody's talking they've got a lot to say they're they're eloquent they're they're you know they're fountainheads of speech throughout and to me there are moments where it's like the sound mixing again like dude i can't i can't hear what these people are saying and especially when they're putting on thick heavy accents like kenneth branagh it's like 
you gotta you gotta mix things a little bit differently. So as an audience member, I can you know fully catch without you know having the subtitles on. Yeah, I agree with that, and that's kind of just like a modern Nolan thing. I feel like he always has a little bit of issues with the mixing. I say just just normalize uh, closed captions in theaters, dude. Like they are doing that a lot more. Uh, I've seen a couple. I think it's a little harder to put it on the film. You gotta like write it on yeah. the film. <laughs> I guess that's fair, but. It's it's been regularized more. I I know AMC has been doing a lot more. There's like, a lot of open. You can do open caption screenings. I I do them occasionally. And I'm a big closed captions guy, so I love that. But I do agree. There were some points, especially I feel like during the Trinity scene for me, where I just couldn't hear half of what kind of they were saying. But it was definitely better than like Tenet and and a lot of other stuff. So uh, one last thing I had for this category. Obviously, this is not even really about the movie, but where the hell's Mike O'Kane at, dude? Like this is this is the movie that Michael Caine is left out of with 100 people. I believe he's retired, so shout out Michael Caine, because uh, I don't think he's done anything for a little bit, and he's probably at least like 95, so probably deserves a break. He's not retired. If he's not retired, not I'm 95. Not... I'll tell you that. Yeah, probably not. But that's 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 pushing it. He's, he's probably older than Harrison. Okay, I mean that's getting up there. He's older than Harrison Ford at least, so should be calling it quits at some point, but. Yeah, I think it's just sad. I feel like just bring him in for like one scene. Like he could have been like Matthew Modine or somebody and had like two lines and, and just but been just fine. But it's sad seeing a Nolan movie with so many white people and, and Michael Caine not showing up. So that's my big gripe. Yeah, I agree. We needed to get Michael Caine. Michael Caine. I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. I was like, when was the last time Michael Caine wasn't in a Nolan movie? It's been a while. I think this is Insomnia, Memento. I guess he wasn't in Memento. True, he should have been. Um, <laughs> he should have played the uh, Joey Pants role. <laughs> True. It's probably been like a couple of decades since he hasn't been in one, honestly. That is crazy. End of an era. All right, let's move on to the ugly. Well, Nolan has done it again. I can say that because he's made <laughs> another movie with <laughs> not the greatest female representation. Um, like you said, I think it is a lot better in the third act and when it comes to the Emily Blunt stuff. And honestly... This is kind of a story where it's like, well, obviously it's a historical movie about like a lot of men who made decisions, but it's also like a story. It's like, you know, kind of, you know, shout out to, to the women for, for not murdering hundreds of thousands of innocent people like the uh, men of this movie did. But it is important to say that, uh, you know, the Florence Pugh character exists mostly to have her shirt off and be naked and have sex with Killian Murphy. Obviously, there's some really interesting communist stuff. Um, that kind of plays in and, and their relationship is explored but every time she appears on screen she has to be naked I think it its use is effective in certain moments but at other times it's like is this really necessary um, and then the Emily Blunt stuff in the first act is mostly just strange and, and doesn't really work you could have just given her a couple more scenes or a couple a little bit more of an explanation um, more stuff between her and Oppenheimer to show their relationship growing out just develop the characters a little bit more um, beyond then beyond crazy wife who drinks agreed that was that was the first main thing on my list honestly just both the female characters um like i said already oppie he's just a real dick um kind of breaking I mean, up with they him. describe him in the movie as a womanizer and they also talk there's like an offhanded mention at the end of the movie that he was like also having an affair with one josh of the other hartnett. guys wives i think it was josh hartnett's wife I don't yeah know. i think so but, um, yeah i guess everybody loves oppie but i don't get it but um yeah, obviously he's like his initial marriage to Emily Blunt's kind of just a sham, whatever. I do have a question for you, and maybe this is just, I saw something that I thought I didn't see, or I'm not sure. 
So obviously Florence Pugh's death is uh, an important scene, obviously. I mean, Oppenheimer feels, you know, pretty responsible, which I think is fair. Does she, does she get murdered? Did I miss something? Cause obviously she's like popping pills or whatever. And then it looks like she's going to drown herself. I swear, dude, I saw like a hand like pushing her head down or something um, into the water. I could be way off. Um, but I think maybe I saw that. So obviously I've only seen the movie once. You've only seen the movie once. I will say like when I was watching it, there is a little bit of a level of ambiguity that they kind of leaves you with questioning what exactly happens. I think there's even a mention about like her not being alone or something. There's something along there. I do, I do remember vaguely there's like some weird question mark about like how did she do it or how did it happen so i agree with you and, and you say that there may be someone online also because maybe there was like oppenheimer's obviously just like visions of it where he saw like a gloved hand next to her so it's probably like like we we're saying i think it's just an ambiguous thing in his head of how he saw it going down i think which is interesting but still pretty ugly um past that uh the obvious of the obvious here uh i mean it's all white people pretty much and uh this movie doesn't come anywhere close, I believe, to passing the Bechdel test. I don't even know if uh, two female characters share a scene together, which is a lot of fun. Um, but past that, I do want to get into my ugly um, theater experience here. I'm going to tell you what, you guys should all be proud of me for even uh, talking about this. Because um, my my phone alarm actually went off during the film. Uh, <laughs> so, so my ringer was off, but I had, because obviously I was off on Sunday. So I, I set an alarm just in case I didn't wake up because like I want to see like the first or second showing of the day for sure. And I woke up way before the first showing. and I was like, I right, just buy the ticket. Let's go to the movie theater. And I forgot that my alarm was on <laughs> for about a half hour later. So it was like right at the beginning. Uh, nothing had really even happened yet. It was, I think you just like poisonous teacher. And I just hear this bam, bam, bam. like what the what the F is that? <laughs> I like spam my pocket. So I don't know. Probably like the people next to me knew it was me, um, but nobody else really was affected. But that is the first time my phone has ever gone off in the movie theater and my ringer was off. So you can hold me accountable, but I'm going to say it wasn't really my fault, you know. Shaking my head, Cody. That is <laughs> atrocious. Just a true atrocity. Are you proud of me for at least telling the story? I, I appreciate you that you're, you're willing to come to the people and admit the truth. So um, <laughs> we all have our moments of shame and uh, I think honesty is the best policy when that yeah thank you that's what i was looking for but yeah pretty tough i honestly don't like in my movie experience like i said that that's never happened before i would be shocked if that happens again but um hey you gotta do everything once they say so never say never Cody. (laughs) (laughs) the next barbie uh stay tuned for the next episode where my my phone yeah (laughs) obviously the dropping of the atomic bomb is a pretty ugly thing a lot of people died. A lot of innocent people who are really just bystanders uh, caught in the middle of a, of a senseless war. I mean, like World War II as a whole is a very ugly subject. It's it's a part of our world's history, and um, I think it's important to like learn from it and to 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 recognize and to accept the reality of what happened in these moments, whether it be the Holocaust or us dropping the atomic bomb, like. We should talk about these things and we should recognize, you know, the 200,000 people that died in Japan uh, as a result of the the bombings or or, the effects of the radiation there and after. Um, And while I think it's important that this movie, you know, does address those facts, it it is still a very ugly thing in the world's history and our nation's history. Um, And, and, you know, obviously got to shout that out. Agreed. And like I said, I, I appreciate that Nolan actually went that direction of showing 
like the horrors of war instead of showing like oh like oh the nukes are cool whatever this is a, a dark movie and it, it should be dark because yeah the the subject matter is is very very you know unpleasant and just you know kind of a, a darkened past of of the world in general so yeah it is it is it is what it is but it's definitely not good I've seen some criticisms regarding like the fact that there are not like Japanese people represented in this movie whatsoever. But I think in terms of the story it's telling, I think that makes sense because these men, like I said, were so disconnected from the people that they like, like to them, it was like they weren't even real people, which is like such the awful thing. It's like they had no basis or even like touch point to understand what was going on. So I think it makes sense that you know, they never really saw or experienced things directly in that way. They got, you know, they revealed the numbers after the fact and they heard the horrors and maybe, you know, in Oppenheimer's head, he could imagine these things, but they were so far disconnected from it that they uh, were able to, you know, a little bit live away from it. Well said. I think there's also just a general air of like white guilt that is probably baked into making this movie. It's like, you know, we're, you know, taking taking responsibility for these actions but it's also like you know what does your guilt or what does your guilt really do to change things nothing at the end of the day so you know while it's good to recognize the wrongdoings you know it's also important to recognize that it's, it's not also it's not really doing anything to to solve the problem either. just feeling guilty for the sake of feeling guilty at times I agree on that dude i feel like dude there's <laughs> there's probably like a hundred more ugly things we could honestly go into with this movie too but yeah that, that is a very good point as well Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're back with Whose Line Is It Anyway? Welcome to Whose Line Is It Anyway? Cody, I got the first one for you here. Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to man. For this, he was chained to a rock and tortured for eternity. Who says that, Cody? Is that an actual line? Because obviously it's the opening crawl text. Ah, some... you got me there. It is <laughs> it is the the text that is displayed on screen, but it is not spoken by anybody. Maybe like Josh Hartnett. Trick you. Josh Good Hartnett one. does, or maybe it's Branagh. Somebody does refer to him as oh, yeah. American Prometheus, which is obviously the title of the book that this movie was kind of loosely based on. And, you know, it's this 800-page book about Oppenheimer's entire life. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's an important quote to start the movie with i'd say oh yeah i think it's a very good opening crawl so i like that a lot i'll throw my first one over at you chances are near zero Mm. Mm. well i think it's said by a few different people dude the hardest thing is like keeping track of which of these guys said it to be honest so many people so the first one who the guy who does the math and comes up with it is teller He's the one who, who comes, you know, he comes to him and says, hey, there's a chance that this could cause a chain reaction, right? So I'm just going to say Teller, but also Oppenheimer says it to Matt Damon, I think, in the third act when they're actually about to do the bombing. So I don't know. I'll throw both of them in there. <laughs> uh, I would never pick a Benny Safdie line. Uh, yeah, it's definitely <laughs> definitely the boy Oppie. Um and like I was saying, I, I really like that conversation that him and Matt Damon have before the Trinity, where it's like, and obviously Matt Damon, they haven't really gone into it a lot, but like you said, Oppenheimer's talked to this with Einstein and everybody else a ton too, but it's like, so what are the chances? Like, we blow up the world here. It's like, oh, it's, you know, less, chances are near zero. And then Matt Damon's like, I would prefer if it was zero, not near zero. So I just like that dialogue. I, I thought that was fun. 
yeah i really enjoy that scene as well even though it's like one that's in the trailer the way it expands beyond in the context is so much better um my one for you here you shook his fucking hand <laughs> uh that's uh miss emily blunt what uh it's a kitty right kitty. shout out kitty, kitty shout out that 70 show kitty foreman but uh yeah emily blunt's great obviously in reference to to him shaking teller's hand and, and then of course we get the the scene a little bit later where she refuses to say, shake his hand which yeah. is great and she says dude i would have spit in his face i thought for a second she's gonna spit on his face in the white house that'd be awesome but uh way to hold it back uh kitty shout out uh my my uh, second one for you here they won't fear it until they understand it they won't understand it until they've used it well, this is a quote from the trailer, and it is Oppenheimer, <laughs> so I will say that. Um, but, I mean, he's not wrong. He, he is correct. They, uh, they, they won't understand it until they use it. Um, yeah. But, yeah, that's a really – that's a good one. Double double down on the Appy quotes, but, yeah, that, that may be my favorite. Even though it is given away in the trailer, that's just like, damn, like, he, he's probably right. Um, that's just like American military in general, I feel like. But that's a tough one. That one stuck with me. Last one for you here, Cody. I am become death destroyer of worlds. I was waiting for this line to go up. Um, I believe it's said by Oppenheimer, but Florence Pugh kind of makes him say it. So you, you go. Could you could you explain to the people how she might make him do that? Yes, I believe. Well, they're in the middle of uh of intercourse. Good mm-hmm. scene. Um, and then they just randomly stop and they're talking about whatever. And Florence Pugh pulls out this book that is, I think, it was in Sanskrit or. Yeah, sure. We'll run with that. And she's like, do a direct translation. And I guess she just picked like the perfect page where it's just like the destroyer of world quote, which is used so much in other movies. It's also used in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. shout out. But um, yeah, good quote. And then they just, you know, start having sex again. So I think I thought it was, you know, pretty powerful on the scene, but a fun quote for that scene, too. I feel like I, I really can't think of a better quote that you could use for that scene. I mean, completely honest. I think, I mean, it's like kind of funny because it's like this weird juxtaposition of obviously what is like a very intimate romantic act in context with this like very harsh line of dialogue that he's delivering. But there's there's also like an air of comedy to it as well. It's also kind of like rendered in this like, like realistic way. Like, I, I don't know, like, it's like sex on screen is often so like glamorized and, and, and that's something that can be said about this movie as a whole. Like people just kind of look ugly at points in this movie. Like people look sweaty, people look dirty, people aren't, you know, covered in makeup and fudge digitally altered. Like you see real aged people on screen and like every scene, whether it's you know the sex scene between Florence Pugh and Killian Murphy or any scene in this movie, is just like rendered very realistically and very like hard and raw and physical. So um I, I think that scene is funny. There was talk of it being like 15 minutes long prior to the movie. Oh, Oppenheimer features a 15 minute long sex. It's obviously not. And that's just like, you know, one of those like internet things that kind of like spreads like wildfire. But I think it's actually like a sex scene that makes sense in a context of the film. I think the ones later on are where I start to get a bit, a little bit like, do we really need to be doing this? Do we really need to just like, hey, Florence B, why don't you sit here naked? <laughs> I don't know. Invite, fight, night. I dumped thee. So, William. Invite, Cody. Who do you want to invite on the podcast? I mean, for me, I, I feel like this is just an obvious choice here. I'm going to double down and make it double obvious. My first pick, I'm going Oppenheimer here. I mean, 
I want to hear more from him. Even though we saw three hours of pretty much his story, I, I do want to hear more. But I want him paired up with somebody. And that somebody's going to be no one else other than Albert freaking Einstein. I mean, this dynamic duo on a podcast, we could just sit here and not talk. And I'm sure it'd be uh, probably the best podcast that we would ever have because those are two of like the greatest and probably the most interesting people, um, you know, just in scientific history. So I feel like those are the obvious choices here, but I, I had to go for it. My choice was Einstein. I had to go for it. Equals MC squared, baby. Let's get down to the fucking bottom of it. Um, I mean, he's he's obviously just more well-known, so I'm taking that for the clout over the Oppenheimer of it all. But I mean, I don't know. I, Einstein's such also just kind of like a weirdo. Oppenheimer's a little bit more of like the straight-laced, you know, down and dirty guy. But uh, Einstein's eclectic, and I like that. So let's get him on the pod. I think you're right. I think Einstein would probably be more entertaining and then bringing them both and i think he he'd probably bring out the best of oppie too because they've known each other for forever so they got some stories i'm sure fight cody who do you want to fight yeah for me i, I got a couple picks again here <laughs> i don't know too much about this one guy but it's just that random guy who i believe was a german uh scientist who defected to england and then that's the guy who rdj said was the leak to russia so if that's true, I'm just going based off of what, you know, RDJ saying, which is probably a bad source. But I guess he deserves a, a knock in the face. I'll fight him. And then secondly, my main pick here, I'm going for Heisenberg. Uh, <laughs> mostly just because of the Breaking Bad reference. And I love that a lot. Uh, that That's kind of coming to fruition of, oh, I know who Heisenberg actually is now. They probably explained it on Breaking Bad, but I didn't care enough to listen. Um, but all, actually in this movie, like he's trying to build atomic bombs for the Nazis. So just not a cool dude. So I think he deserves a, you know, smack in the face too. Uh, the guy you were rec- referencing was Klaus Fuchs and he's played by Christopher Denham in the movie. Mm. But yes, the guy who gave away all the, uh, the secrets that basically are, you know, uh, Oppenheimer was blamed for. Yeah. Started the cold war almost. So shout out to him. For me, I mean, there's so many people that you could pick, like you said. Uh, Kenneth Nichols, which is Dane DeHaan's character. That guy's kind of an asshole through the whole movie and is kind of going up against Oppenheimer. So I'd fight him. And then, I mean, Benny Safdie's character, Edward Teller, also down to the very end is kind of, uh, I mean, his whole thing is he's pushing, let's go for the hydrogen bomb. Let's go even bigger. And I mean, obviously, they opened Pandora's box way before that, way before Oppenheimer even got involved. But just like continuing to go down further and further down the line, like Oppenheimer said, you know, rather than de-escalating nuclear arms, uh, they, they, you know, they continued through the Cold War and a lot of, you know, Edward Teller's actions were, uh, you know, got us to where we are today with the uh, nuclear arms. And Benny Safdie is just, you know, not a great guy either, so throw him in. <laughs> Last one, Knight. I got to give a shout out to Kitty Oppenheimer for that, for that third act fucking baller status shit uh yeah she's definitely deserving of the night maybe not the best mom but also she was you know kind of just like forced to be a housewife in this you know city in the middle of new mexico so i i can kind of understand it yeah fair um and mine kind of goes along with the same lines of both of what you're talking about there my night is it's gonna go to oppenheimer which is boring but it's specifically for shaking uh benny safty's hand at the end even though i mean he did kind of you know, screw him over just to kind of stay in good graces with the government in a sense, or at least the AEC, whoever was uh, doing the interrogation, whatever. Um, but like you said, I mean, Kitty Foreman, she had uh, her reasons too. Um, but Oppie, you know, he's just a good guy, I think, in the end of all things. And he realized that 
this guy probably is just doing this for a career point. I think they do have mutual respect for each other. So I think him shaking his hand, even though he did kind of screw him over, is, is kind of a cool move. Shout out to being the bigger man. Yeah, I do have one more here for night, and it's not his character, but it's the man himself, David Dismalkian. Man, he shows up in this one as well. Uh, but I just love in this movie, like he's playing just the all-time hater. He's just the, the biggest Oppenheimer, biggest anti-Oppenheimer guy around. He obviously is kind of given some information by Robert Downey Jr. and sent along his way. But I just I love his like obsession with just taking down Oppenheimer in this movie and. David Dismalkian, he's always playing little weirdos, and uh, and this time he gets to play a little bit of a villain, so it's fun. Always love seeing uh, David Dismalkian. I believe his character's name was Borden, which is a character name from The Prestige as well. So shout out to that Nolan connection. Shout out Borden, Alfred Borden from The Prestige. Yeah, great flick. The recast, Cody. Bond. James Bond. My name's Bond. James Bond. The name's Bond. James Bond. The name's Bond. I mean, you could really go any direction you want here with a billion characters. Of course, I'm going to get rid of Benny Safdie. I've been rigging on him the entire episode here. And uh, you know what? We're just going to stay in the good time kind of, you know, universe altogether. Give me the guy who inspired Nolan to make this movie. Why is Robert Pattinson not in this movie? I mentioned in Tenet, but I want to see him and Nolan work together a lot in the future here. He was hanging out with, uh, he was taking bong hits with our man Junho. Still in <laughs> Mickey Seven. Yeah, that's true. He's making a movie with Bong Junho, so I guess that's that's a good excuse. But come on, get him like for one or two scenes where he can leave, you know, uh, Bong Junho's movie for a couple. You of think? Days. Okay, regardless of wanting to recast Benny Safdie, do you think that's the best role for Pattinson in this movie? I do because you know maybe and he could probably do a better Hungarian accent than Benny Safdie. I'm sure that was most of the casting process of just being like, okay, who can actually speak in this accent and we can understand what they're saying. But I, I genuinely don't think Benny Safdie's a very good actor. I mean, what else has he done? Really, anything? I think he's a better director than he is an actor. So he, you know, he popped up in a movie last year called Stars at Noon, where he did just kind of like a cameo supporting role. He's been in a, he's been in a couple things, but yeah, I, I do generally agree. He's, you know, he's, a, lot of, he's a better director. There's a lot of people in this movie who don't work a ton. I mean, oh yeah, he plays the dad in Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which came out earlier this year. Um, he's yeah. pretty good in that. Fair enough. I'll have to check that out because I've not seen that. To be fair, um, and he, he's pretty good in Good Time too, even though it's obviously a completely different character. But I think he's all right. I would just personally want to get rid of him. And I think Robert Pattinson would be perfect for that role. So, yeah, give me give me more Rob Pat. I think Robert Pattinson could probably kill that Alden Ehrenreich role, the Senate aide that's kind of hanging out with RDJ the whole time. I think that'd be a good spot for him. But, you know, scheduling-wise, maybe it's too many days on set. I think, well, yeah. What about Jason Clark? Could he be, like, the evil guy who's interrogating the whole time? That'd be good. I think, surprisingly, Jason Clark, that's not somebody I would want to replace. I think he's actually pretty dang good so shout out to him i did i did have a recast for him just to okay. maybe get a little bit bigger name in there hugh jackman Ooh, i, I think mean, he'd be I, really I good like as the, yeah. the antagonist and, and get our nolan boys back right <laughs> you don't see hugh in a lot of villain roles either so i'd love to see that we talked about it casey affleck being so highly billed is really strange especially because he's really just in the one scene and i he was one guy who i don't think i knew was in this movie it was a bit of a jump scare when he came up and I'd like to replace him because I also just think he's not really right for that role. I think we need somebody that's a little bit more grizzled, somebody that's a little bit more of an asshole. Um, 
yes, maybe Casey Affleck is an asshole, but just like when you look at him, you're like, yeah, it seems like a good guy. Uh, so let's take Mark Wahlberg, a guy that when you look at him, you're like, this guy's an asshole. So we're going to replace one Bostonian with another. And uh, he's going to be the the dickhead, basically, cop in the, the military world. I love that pick, honestly. Um, and it's the other person I'm replacing here. Mark Wahlberg, not cross my mind, but give me a departed Mark Wahlberg. Bring that Boston accent. I'm on board. Um, but I agree with you. I think I, I think I did actually know Casey Affleck was in this. The one who I didn't know was Gary Oldman. That was a, that was a fun reveal for me. It was like Gary Oldman's in this movie. He's playing President Truman. I thought that was kind of cool and kind of like a shocker, like you said. But my Casey Affleck replacement, like you said, I, I don't think he's very scary. And especially in like this role where he's supposed to be like this menacing general where he's kind of like interrogating Cillian and he's like, oh, don't say anything you shouldn't because Casey Affleck will make you pay. I don't really get that from him. Uh, who maybe I could get that from is uh, buff Batman Ben Affleck. Uh, I'm just going, you know, brother, <laughs> brother on brother replacement. I thought about that too. I was like, maybe we, we swap the Afflecks. Yeah. Yeah. Just give me a beefed up Ben Affleck. I feel like he has a deeper voice and it's a bit more intimidating. So I think it would have worked better, at least in, in that one scene in particular. Yeah. I like that. Last thing I wanted, I wanted to replace Bran all, get rid of Niels Bohr. And uh, my, my pick is Leif Schreiber. I, I don't, you know, I could see him co- going into a couple different roles in this movie. He's such a fantastic actor. Um, I really love him in Spotlight. I would love to see him take on one of the roles. And just because I don't like Branagh, I'll, I'll switch them out for now. Fair enough. I like that too. I think uh, I would guess that Liam Schreiber, you know, auditioned for a couple of these roles, but who knows? Maybe he's busy doing God knows what. Uh, another X-Men order. Maybe he's going to be in Deadpool. <laughs> I honestly would not be shocked rating cody do you like me we finally got there what do you want to rate this movie out of 69 i'll get us started i think this is a five-star movie cody and i think it's a 64 out of 69 (laughs) wow wow is that um that's gotta be one of your higher known ratings right you know well would you believe it's still my fourth favorite nolan movie (laughs) really you must have ranked the prestige pretty high too then i like that yeah yeah, I guess that's fair. I mean, what was before Dark Knight and Inception for you? Inception, too? The Prestige, Dark Knight would be my top three. Yeah, that's fair. And um, I'll just jump straight into my rating as well, because it's pretty similar to yours. I got it out of 63 out of 69. Like you said, I, I think this is a, a very, very good film, as as we've been talking about. I agree. It, it's probably number three in my rankings. Prestige, Dark Knight, and then uh, this flick. I think I do like it a little bit more than Inception, actually. Obviously, completely different movies. I feel like it's hard to judge, but yeah, recency bias be damn. I, I like this movie a lot. Yeah, I honestly think I might enjoy it more on a second watch too. So, um, rating could go up. Who knows? <laughs> Post credit scene. What if I told you we were putting a team together? Who's we? Cody, what do you want to do? <laughs> I got a great one this week. I'm excited. So this is kind of a riff of, and maybe nobody has any idea what I'm talking about, really. But uh, the King's Man, I believe you know this, Garvin. Yeah, I do, yes. They had like a Hitler post-credit scene. So I want to do something similar to that in a sense, but obviously not introducing Hitler here. So my scene opens up. It's just Robert Downey Jr. chilling in his office, and uh, there's a knock at the door. And I guess who walks in, Corbin? This is another sequel bait that I didn't bring up earlier. It's John F. Well, Kennedy. 
they do that's the thing they do do the jfk name drop in the movie yeah. <laughs> so it, it makes sense honestly that that would probably be the the connection so i i think you killed it i don't think i could top that yeah. and the way like they did it too it reminded me of the king's man just like the the verbiage of it and everything but i had a fan cast a young there. senator from massachusetts oh what's his name kennedy it's yeah. <laughs> like oh let's go there's a big clap in my uh, theater for that but um uh, I had some fan castings too. Um, I want your uh, thoughts on this, but I thought either, uh, what's the guy's name from Top Gun Maverick? I can never remember. Miles Teller? No, (laughs) the other one. Some white guy. Oh, uh, you mean Glenn Powell. You you don't know Glenn Powell. Powell. I was thinking either Glenn Powell or Jake Gyllenhaal. Glenn Powell's a young JFK. Okay. Yeah, I think that'd be okay. But he just just comes in and he's like, hey, RDJ, I heard you wanted to talk to me. You fucking suck. Yeah, and then RDJ says something. He's like, "You're gonna pay for what you did to Oppy," and then it's cut the black. <laughs> Basically, too, I just want Nolan to do like another biopic, but do a JFK, like a Kennedy one. I think would be really interesting too. Give me a Nolan sequel uh, to this film with a with a Kennedy and RDJ. RDJ can come back too. That's the beauty of it. So I don't know. This is a really tough movie to do a post credit yeah. scene, and obviously this is our final one. So maybe we should do a good one. Uh, you mentioned that there could be the sequel, the, the Teller sequel, the Edward Teller sequel, the H-bomb. So, like, if you're going to do, like, the really scummy thing, like, oh, here's Edward Teller meeting with somebody to make the H-bomb, that would be ridiculous. Don't do that. Uh-huh. Secondary option, let's get Michael Caine in the post-credit scene. If he's not going to be in the movie, let's let's have the post-credit tease be Michael Caine. I don't know who Michael Caine would play. When did Winston Churchill die? I don't know. Ooh. I don't hate that actually. No, he's definitely alive because World War II is Churchill, Stalin, and uh... sixty-five. So I, I don't know if he ever met Oppenheimer, but maybe we'll get Michael Caine as Winston Churchill. I don't think that's a great. Probably did. Michael Caine, he might be a little bit old. <laughs> maybe a little. He'd be like Oppie's dad or something. Be like, you did it, son. I'm proud of you. <laughs> maybe he could play the uh, the ghost of America in his dreams uh and then last one let's just get a good old classic blooper reel we love a good comedy let's let's see the bloopers <laughs> playing after the credits for Oppenheimer <laughs> any specific actor you want with a blooper Roderick Rules with the snot or yeah I mean there's a there's a couple different ones maybe you know different takes of of Emily Blunt staring down uh Benny Safdie I'm sure there's maybe she does one where she spits in his face okay. uh you know stuff like that the bomb not going off and then you're like oh let's go check it oh, oh shit it blows up stuff like that you know just funny you know just good laughs because this that's what this movie's all about right yeah i love it six degrees of dave if someone does something irksome and i decide to remove his spine that's that's actually murder one of the worst crimes of all so also illegal Killian Murphy to Dave Batista. How will you connect them today, Cody? You know, for the season finale, I went. I went. Uh, what I went. You know, near the end of the season here, extremely lazy. So <laughs> I went Killian Murphy to. Uh, I was trying to just like brainstorm some of his movies. He's he's obviously got a supporting role in a lot of stuff, but I couldn't think of too many, so I just went with Batman Begins, which of course he's a scarecrow. And um, I believe also starring in the movie, I could be wrong, is uh, Christian Bale's Batman. Um, and I, I think he's in uh, Thor Love and Thunder uh, with Dave Bautista. So I went two degrees again this week. Like I said, just just going the lazy route. for the, Should have done the opposite. Should have done the longest possible route you could to really uh, savor the final one. 
True. Yeah. Uh, I did that the first couple episodes and I was like, eh, you know, it's the end of the season. Got to keep it. Got to keep it small. Disappointing the fans. Wow, Cody. Killian Murphy is in a movie called 28 Days Later with Brendan like- Gleeson. Classic. And uh, he was in last year's Banshees of Inishirin with Barry Keoghan. Mm. He was in The Eternals. Oh, oh, we're going Marvel? Nope. With Kumail Nanjiani, who's in a little film called Stuber with Dave Bautista, where he plays the titular Stu who drives the Uber in Stuber. Oh, that movie. I was like, what is Stuber? The Uber movie. Yeah, okay. Nice deep cut there for the season finale. I love that. That is hey, not we- didn't want to go pure Marvel the whole season. <laughs> Stupid. I would have never guessed in a million years that would come up, but I love it. Finally, Cody, recommendations. What have you been into? I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. What have you been watching, man? Well, I'll save a couple things because obviously we're doing the Barbenheimer here back to back. So I'll, I'll focus this one around. I, I forgot to talk about it last week. But the show uh, Secret Invasion, which um, it's got to be like the lowest viewed Marvel show of all time, I think. So I see nothing about it online. But and uh, I guess prefaces it to it. Have you been watching Corbin? I'm guessing not. OK, yeah, you know, it is what it is. I feel like the scroll invasion could be really interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't really like the show, if I'm being honest. I thought the pilot was uh, actually pretty good. And you know, I said that on the podcast before. I think it's only six episodes and I believe. Uh, five have come out now and basically from like episode two to episode five nothing really happens other than what i I guess this is a spoiler alert i don't know are you ever gonna watch i don't care just tell me basically at the end of every episode um somebody just gets shot that that's literally the ending of i think episodes one through five so far so you know it is what it is it's just kind of you know not entertaining at this point and um oh there is a guy though who's the main villain uh graphic this is kind of just uh turning into our barbie review but he, he's one of the kens in barbie so i thought that was cool when i walked into barbie i was like oh i didn't know graphic was in this movie but uh, he, he's actually a pretty menacing villain uh super dark so i assume they're going to kill him off and he'll never show up in a movie because he does some pretty messed up stuff but yeah i, I wouldn't really recommend that it's all the the big ai thing which everybody's been talking about which um is definitely an issue uh, I don't really care that much about it just for an opening credit scene in a show that nobody's going to watch, but definitely good. I think to cut it off, uh, you know, at the head of the snake while it is here, but that's just what I'll cover in, in this episode. Just don't watch secret invasion other than, than the pilot so far, pretty much. Yeah. It's really unfortunate. Cause I feel like secret invasion is a rather beloved storyline and is like such a major storyline in the context of like the Marvel world. It feels weird that it's like, such a minor thing in the world of the MCU. I'm worried about Marvel, man. I don't know. I mean, also, I just, like, don't even care. So maybe I'm not worried. I'm just, like, kind of ambivalent. But, like, I, I don't know. I don't know about the future of of, of Marvel entertainment writ large. I mean, uh, their movies this past year have not been great. I think they have some stuff upcoming that just that is interesting. And they'll still be fine, I think, for the next, like, five years, I think, money-wise. Like, obviously integrating you know the x-men and stuff is going to make them bank and they still have spider-man so they'll be fine i think in the long run but all their kind of minor projects that they're doing i feel like have pretty much been misses recently so 
it is interesting. They might slash the budget a lot too, and kind of just cut out a lot of the fluff, which which will be well. Our uh, our favorite person, as we mentioned on the podcast last week, not really. Bob Iger was talking obviously about you know slashing a lot of spending. You know, Disney as a whole is a little bit of financial trouble. A lot of people got fired from ESPN. A lot of people got laid off in a lot of different places. But I think Marvel and, and Lucasfilm both will be uh, spending less money, especially on like streaming TV show content. Yeah. And I think from a Marvel perspective, like that makes sense. Like they've pumped out like, I don't even know, like 12 shows in like three years or something. So the CG artists alone just, you know, don't get paid enough. And and they're obviously overworked like crazy. So I wouldn't mind, you know, just cutting half those shows and making better quality stuff. So it, it is what it is regardless. I don't know if I'll watch it. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe one it's day. Not, yeah, it's not great. <laughs> couple things that I've watched uh, that I'll shout out. Uh, I watched Memories of Murder, which is uh, one of Bong Joon-ho's early films. And it is kind of uh, a bit of a Zodiac-esque story, kind of based on a real uh, serial killer in the South Korean countryside. But it's really cool because it's like set in the 1980s. It's very specific about its time and place. There's a lot of uh, greater context of political unrest that's happening in Korea at the time, you know, protests and you know, students kind of rising up against the, the military, but at the same time, you've got this, you know, agrarian society that's being attacked and plagued by this uh, serial killer. And it's kind of about the methodology of trying to find it and, you know, trying to discover who the killer may be. Um, it leaves things ambiguous at the end because they didn't know who did it in a similar way to Zodiac. Um, really effective uh, crime drama. It's got our man, Sung King Ho as the star he plays a little bit of a different role um, where he's kind of this incompetent police officer who's kind of just an idiot the whole time. And then there's another cop from like the big city that comes in to kind of help run the investigation more competently. Um, there's another police officer that just kind of goes around and drop kicks people left and right, which is a great bit and uh, really funny. So funny movie, dark comedy, satire, uh, but just really effectively directed and, and really impressive. Um, it also was clearly very influential to the movie Zodiac and the work of David Fincher just four years later. And it made me want to go rewatch Zodiac, so I did. Shout out Mark Ruffalo, shout out Jake Gyllenhaal, and shout out Oppenheimer's very own Robert Downey Jr. for their work on that movie. <laughs> um, and then the last thing I'll say uh, is I, I did go rewatch Talladega Nights to just see what if Nolan was really right. And uh, I do think the first hour of that movie is really good and really funny. And then after that, it kind of sucks. I agree. I saw too that you liked my uh, letterbox review of it from a long time ago. But yeah, that that's one of my kind of uh, comedy classics that I love. Uh, so it's funny no one likes it. But yeah, it, it definitely, once Ricky Bobby, like, he like loses his powers or whatever, it, it really slows down. It, I mean, it's the problem that many comedies have of, of a great premise, a great setup, but then like, where do you go from there? It is really, I mean, it's also like an interesting commentary in the context of like the Bush era. And especially when you think about like all the movies that Adam McKay has made, it's like, he was very consciously thinking about those things um, in the production of the movie. And, you know, John C. Riley's great. Will Ferrell's great. Sasha Baron Cohen is incredible. Shake and bake, baby. Love Shake it. and bake. And, uh, the the scene around the table of them praying to baby Jesus is is one of my favorites. Yeah, I got it. Uh, Walker and Texas Ranger, baby. <laughs> well, this has been uh, the end of season five. Thank you guys for uh, coming along on this journey. It's been a fun one. And uh, we're going to be kicking it right off with uh, season six very shortly. Yeah. 
stay tuned, obviously, for the uh, Barbenheimer uh, duality coming together. But, yeah, ending season five. If you're stuck around this entire season, appreciate you guys a ton. Trekking on to season six here, Corbin. Definitely some some crazy stuff, but I thought it was a really fun season, and uh, I can't wait for season six. Thanks for watching, everybody. Thank you to Cody for another great season, and uh, excited <laughs> for the rest of this year, man. Yeah, appreciate it your way as well, and uh, stay capping. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it.